We're not here just to win an election. We are here to win something for our country. Welcome to this special edition of the Menzies Research Centre Water Cooler podcast. We're joined today by Senator Jacinta Price and also Freya Leach, who's the director of our Centre for Youth Policy. Thank you, Jacinta. Thank you, Freya, for being here. Our listeners will have heard many arguments for and against The Voice. In the discussion today, we'll attempt to answer a lot of the questions that young Australians in particular want to know on this important issue. We're really grateful that Senator Price is available today. She's a Senator for the Northern Territory. She's also the Shadow Minister in Peter Dutton's Shadow Ministry for Indigenous Affairs. She's been working for two decades on Indigenous issues um, in the Northern Territory, but right across Australia. She's never afraid to call it like it is. Since 2015, she was elected to Alice Springs Council, where she fought hard to improve the lives of Indigenous kids and tackle the tough issues like domestic violence. Uh, You've been a Senator since when, Sinta? Since I was elected in May last year. And uh, risen to the Shadow Cabinet quite quickly and for a very important issue as we're grappling with the referendum and the voice at the moment. At the outset of this discussion, Jacinta, I think it's important that we separate the concepts of constitutional recognition for Indigenous Australians and the voice. Now, constitutional recognition for Indigenous Australians has had bipartisan support and was proposed by John Howard all the way back in 2007. Uh, The referendum that people will be faced with now is merging these two issues in a sense. And a lot of our listeners and viewers would have received this in the mail at the moment, which is merging the issue of constitutional recognition for Indigenous Australians and this concept of the voice that we're going to drill down with today. Jacinta, how did you feel when these issues were merged together in a somewhat condensed timetable? I was deeply concerned at the concept of constitutionally enshrining an entity that is unknown, that will be determined after the referendum is successful. Obviously, recognition is something that many of us could get behind and certainly something that I could get behind. But I think it's very sneaky of the Albanese government to hitch the voice concept to recognition and suggesting that it's this is what it's primarily about when we know it's not. If this referendum ultimately goes down, do you think the case for recognising Indigenous Australians could be lost forever in the Constitution? Yeah. Look, I don't know that it could be lost forever. I think if there's still appetite for it, we could come back to it eventually. Uh, but I think Australians are also very much, in terms of priority, are concerned with addressing some of the tough issues that we face in a more in more common sense, practical ways that produce the sort of outcomes that we need to improve the lives of our most marginalised. And there's, they're the sorts of things that I think Australians know that we can get on with right away, as opposed to the recognition element. And this is getting to the arguments that I think Jacinta, you helped put together in this referendum booklet associated with the why vote no case. Jacinta, could you take us through a few of those and imagine you're talking to, say, a 20-year-old student, one of Freya's contemporaries, who's heard the arguments. They may have been told that it's racist to, to vote to vote no. What would you be saying to them? Sure, I would suggest to them, and I know it's very difficult at times, but we do have to remove some of the emotional aspect from this because Mm -hmm. the Constitution belongs to every single Australian and the decision to change, amend the Constitution is a huge decision and there are consequences as a result of making such a change. I would suggest that, that young people do more research into it because what they will uncover is that there are many Indigenous Australians 
who do not support this proposal, who are concerned with being framed uh, as being supportive of it. We don't treat any other race of people in this country in this manner, in lumping us all together as though we're one homogenous group who agrees. That concept actually is the racist com- concept that suggests that we can't be individuals in our own right, that we all have to think the same, is nonsense. But it's also based on the premise, the voice, the concept of vo- the voice is based on this idea that we are inherently disadvantaged as a race of Australians for no other reason but because of our racial heritage. And that in itself, again, is the racist concept as opposed to saying no to making an amendment to our constitution that affects every single Australian and actually cannot guarantee that it will make better the lives of our most marginalised. So are you worried, Jacinta, on that point that if a lot of people tick yes, the ballot box, and think job done, but of course outcomes aren't going to necessarily change overnight, are you worried it could be counterproductive in that sense? that a lot of people might think that the sheer gesture of voting yes solves all the problems and then there will be, okay, let's move on to the next problem. And then these issues are just lost again. Yeah, I think the idea that people have been caught up with the emotional blackmail of this Mm -hmm. referendum, if there were a yes vote, what concerns me greatly is that this would become an entity that pretty much the Minister of the Day, whether it's Linda Burney or whoever it might be, would then see issues that are difficult to deal with concerning Indigenous Australians as too hardball and will want to handball it to the voice Mm -hmm. entity. So ultimately we'd be relegated as a race of people to this entity to deal with all of our issues that, again, it's not guaranteed that the voice will solve any of those issues whatsoever. So true. And one of the assumptions behind the voice seems to be that somehow government will be able to solve all of these issues and close the gap. If only we had more representatives, we could make representations and somehow they would be distinct from the 11 Aboriginal members of parliament we already have, then all of these problems would be fixed. Do you agree with the premise of that argument that government will even be able to solve all these problems? Look, it's not for government to solve to solve all our problems and government is a mechanism to help alleviate or find some solutions, but ultimately it's up to individuals to it's an individual battle for us to be able to solve some of our problems. And part of that is having the opportunity, having the privilege of taking responsibility. And when Aboriginal Australians are consistently told that we are oppressed and that we are victims, that mindset removes our agency and suggests that somebody else is responsible for our lives, being government or non-Indigenous Australians, as opposed to recognising that we are human beings and individuals and capable of controlling our own destinies. And what I would say to young people also is that I'm a prime example, my mother's a prime example of what it means as human beings to take advantage of the opportunities that this country has to offer. My mother was born in the bush. Her first language was not English, it was Walpri. And there were several other languages she spoke before she spoke Walpri. She was promised in marriage as to become a second wife in an arranged traditional marriage. She rebelled against her culture because she wanted a future of her own. She wanted out of her community, she wanted an education. 
But there are still young women in those communities under similar circumstances as my mother. Now, my mother went on to become a Minister of the Crown in the Territory Government, and she didn't need a constitutionally enshrined voice to achieve this. And now, as her daughter, I proudly have been appointed as the Minister for Indigenous Australians, and I didn't need a constitutionally enshrined voice to achieve this for myself. So there's plenty of living examples of successful Indigenous Australians in this country who did not require a constitutionally enshrined voice to become successful Australians. Mm. And that to me, this voice has the potential to undermine that, I believe. Thanks Jacinta. That's fascinating in hearing about your story. I mean, I've heard it before, but what you and your mother have done is incredible. And also your colleague, Senator Little as well. Her family's had a lot of success despite some challenging circumstances as well. Just Getting to the arguments, I've got the 10 reasons that you've issued here why you're suggesting people should vote no. Why is the voice legally risky in your view? Because once it is enshrined in the constitution and while it makes reference to making presentations to the executive, I don't think Australians quite understand, mm-hmm. means federal parliament, it means state parliament, territory parliaments, it means local government, it means departments and agencies, the bureaucracy, it means the Governor-General. If you consider that the executive determines appointments who, you know, who sits on the High Court, the voice might very well suggest whoever sits in the High Court affects us as Indigenous Australians and therefore we need to be part of the decision-making of who sits on the High Court. Also, it, ha- it will have the constitutional right to ha- provide advice on. If I wanted to put forward a private senator's bill like the one that I put forward earlier this year on that was about reinstating alcohol bans in some of the communities that are marginalised to better people's lives, the voice might turn around and say, before that goes to the vote in the Senate, we want to see that bill. We want to make determinations about that and provide advice. And if we don't like it, we're going to challenge it in the High Court, effectively holding up decision making. And not just with regard to issues like that, but when it's suggested that, you know, it's matters concerning Aboriginal Australians, we're Australian citizens. So there's not a matter or a piece of policy or legislation that doesn't affect us. So it would have the constitutional right to make those sorts of challenges and effectively hold up democracy. You've been elected by the people of the Territory to represent their views. How will The Voice interact with you as as an elected parliamentarian? When you were going into this, you thought your role was to represent these communities. You've got other people who are representatives as well if The Voice does get up and they're in those roles. How will that work in practice or do you not know? We can't know for sure, but what is concerning is that if there are activists on The Voice who don't particularly like me personally or like the policies that I submit or stand for, then they would have their opportunity to challenge me and to undermine my work as an elected member of parliament and a senator for the Northern Territory. And if you listen to the proponents of The Voice, they're already suggesting that as the 11 Indigenous federal parliamentarians, that our voice is not legitimate Mm. enough for representing Indigenous Australians, according to them. So therefore, they don't have a respect for us. We have heard from proponents of the voice that 
they would use the voice to punish politicians who don't agree with them. So effectively, they are prepared to undermine those of us who are elected to federal parliament through our democratic system. A hundred percent. It is so concerning. The other question I have for you is, like so many Australian families, yours is made up of people of different backgrounds. You yourself are obviously an Aboriginal woman, but your husband, I believe, is actually Scottish and a newly minted Australian citizen. The Voice is going to give special rights and privileges to Aboriginal people in our country and leave people like your husband out and actually divide families along the lines of race. Do you, how do you feel about that? Passionately upset about that uh, because our story is the Australian story. I've got a Wadbury mother and a white Australian father. I've got a blended family, three boys that I gave birth to and my stepson. My three boys have Indigenous heritage, but my stepson doesn't. He is going to be treated differently to the three that I gave birth to, but we are one family. And why should newly minted Australians feel like they are second-class citizens in the country that they've come to to call their home as citizens? There should be no differentiation in terms of citizenship in our country, but the voiced parliament is creating that. And... The way I was brought up in with my elders in Alice Springs was to understand that we all belonged here. So particularly when it comes to our spirituality, that our, in the dreaming stories and our creator ancestors that created the land left their spiritual essence in the land. But when you're conceived, you're, it is thought that your baby spirit has leapt from the ground into your mother's belly, giving you a spiritual connection to the land. But my elders taught me that it didn't matter what your racial heritage was, that... Mm. The baby spirit, your baby spirit comes from this land and is now part of who you are as an Australian. And so you too hold responsibility for this country and the spiritual lessons of the creator ancestors. That to me is what real, that's lived reconciliation. And that is not what we've seen with our activist class. Instead, we see continuation of separatism. And this is what they want to do with the voice. You've been travelling the country, you've been setting a frenetic pace, Jacinta, over the last couple of months, and I'm sure you'll get a rest when voting day comes along, and it'll be well-deserved. Migrant communities, what are they? You've obviously met with Greeks, Italians, Vietnamese, the migrant communities that have made our multicultural nation a great success. What are you hearing from them in relation to this issue of the voice? Have they embraced it? Do they think it's going to move our country forward? What, What reaction are you getting from them? A lot of concern from the migrant community. We Last night we had an audience of about 700 in Blacktown and there were many of the migrant community come to me to say, Cinta, we came to this country because we were escaping apartheid or we were escaping countries that are dividing us in various different ways and we came here because we thought Australia was one of these countries that was accepted everybody as multicultural communities but now we don't know where we're going to stand with this and where our children stand and as far as they're concerned they feel just as a part of this country as anybody else but they feel like that's under threat with this proposal and rightly I think so yeah it's been incredible the sort of reaction from the multicultural community. So they might from what you're saying there Jacinta one of your arguments here is that the voice 
divides us or has the potential to divide us. Are you saying that might be more pronounced, mm. that concern amongst some of our migrant communities as well? Yeah, absolutely, because they're, they're suggesting why is it that somebody who can have a little bit of Indigenous heritage in them are regarded as more important or have this extra say in our democracy over those of us who, you know, is some who's my grandfather immigrated here in their personal stories and we feel very much a part of this country but otherwise it's very concerning for them. So true. One of the arguments I've heard Albo make and a lot of the, the Yes camp is that it's symbolically important to have Aboriginals at the table making decisions and making representations through the voice. But if the voice is about closing the gap, and then we're putting it in the constitution. What is the real symbolism there? Are we actually saying Aboriginals are permanently going to be this lesser group of people that needs extra support? Like, I, for some reason, for me, it just doesn't really stack up. Oh, it's a complete contradiction, really, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the whole point of having the voice is supposedly to close that gap, and yet, but it will suggest that will exist permanently and will permanently require special measures as a group of Australians, ultimately what would what we would be aiming for is to be done with the separatist approach. Ultimately, I wouldn't need to be Shadow Minister for Indigenous Australians because we wouldn't need such a portfolio if we were to achieve closing that gap. And again, the gap that I'm talking about is not the gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. It's the gap between our most marginalised and everybody else, which includes 80% of Indigenous Australians because... There is a massive middle class of Indigenous Australians doing really well for ourselves. And what we haven't done is focused our efforts on where our marginalised exist. Mm-hmm. And they are those whose first language is in English, who, who still live connected to traditional culture, living in regional remote parts of this country. And that's where we should be focusing our efforts. But the voice, again, it suggests that we're all marginalised for no other reason but because of our racial heritage. And correct me if I'm wrong, Jacinta, but there already is a clause in the Constitution that allows for special laws to be made in relation to Indigenous Australians, but I'm not sure that clause has had great success in lifting Indigenous Australians out of disadvantage as well up until this point. takes us on to argument number four here, Jacinta, it won't help Indigenous Australians. So you're concerned that more bureaucracy isn't the answer. So I'd like you to talk to us about that and explain that and then maybe touch on what is the answer? What can we do to help? Sure. It's been suggested that creating a yet another expensive taxpayer-funded bureaucracy is something we haven't done when obviously we have done this over and over again. The only difference this time is they want to put it in our constitution. Putting it in our constitution doesn't magically make it effective. What it does do is risk having this permanent ineffective body within our constitution that could be radicalised with activists. And what I would suggest is that we've got to learn from history and entities such as ATSIC were a bipartisan, was a bipartisan decision to dismantle it because of its ineffectiveness and its allegations of corruption and fraud and various other things. So we should probably step away from that particular model of doing things instead of repeating it again. And what I aim to do, and we've begun this at the moment, so myself and Senator Karen Little have a motion on the floor of the Senate to launch an inquiry into land councils, statutory authorities, Aboriginal organisations, 
those that are funded billions of dollars and are responsible for advancing our marginalised and understanding why they're not providing those outcomes, applying accountability, which I don't think we've done very well, to ensure that there's no repeat of that continued behaviour and fixing the structures that currently exist. That's what we haven't done and that's what I'm proposing to the Australian people we need to do instead. That's about being practical. At the Menzies Research Centre, we're passionate believers in the power of ideas to change conversations and shape the future. Thanks to podcasts, we've extended our circle of conversations to thousands of people every month. Podcasts are a great medium for think tanks. Listeners turn into podcasts for longer, more sophisticated conversations than they can find on conventional media, and we're very happy to provide them. And thanks to the generosity of our supporters, we can deliver them for free. You can show your support by subscribing to the Menzies Research Centre from just $10 a month. Go to menziesrc.org slash subscribe or click on the link in the podcast notes. So what you're saying here is similar to what we're grappling with school education at the moment where more money's being tipped in and governments think we're spending more, we must be getting better outcomes and we don't need to really focus on improving things other than just spending more money and then all of the hard work is pushed aside. And then actually what happens and what we're seeing with the NAPLAN results is the results just keep getting worse. We've never spent more on education and we've never had worse results and it's a similar thing in this context as well. Exactly, yep. I was interested, Jacinta, you were talking about not knowing what issues are within the scope of a voice and what issues aren't. In, in, in answering that, I'd like you to touch on, you, you probably have a clear idea as a senator what you can do, what you can't do, what, where the extent of your powers go. You presumably don't have any, not being a minister because you're in opposition, you don't have any control over the executive. So I presume there's a very clear line, is there, Jacinta, for you, as far as your powers as an elected senator go? That's exactly right. This proposal is suggesting that The Voice would have more power than us as parliamentarians over the executive. And that's not how a democracy functions. That is the clear and present danger that The Voice poses to our democracy. And that is a great concern that I have, is that it has the potential to upend democracy as we know it and give a great deal of power to a handful of unelected individuals based solely on their racial heritage. So terrifying. And I think what's even scarier is if you listen to some of the views of advocates of The Voice and then also the longer Uluru Statement from the Heart that has surfaced in recent weeks, The Voice actually seems to be part of a broader agenda of pursuing things like a treaty and even maybe reparation. How do you feel about that? It's actually not just The Voice. There's this whole other raft of really radical measures that that Labor's trying to push through, but they're almost lying to the Australian people by trying to convince them it's just The Voice. That's exactly right. And what's deeply concerning is that, one, a Prime Minister hasn't even read... (laughs) All of the pages, he going into the federal election, fully endorsed the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which he believed, or is playing stupid, 
that is only one page, mm. but that one page is like the executive summary of the memorandum of explanation behind it all, which is, you're right, quite radical in some of the concepts that have been drawn up. I can't believe that in a democracy in 2023, we've come so far in our nation that this document has been adopted and there's even suggestions within that document that talk about the possibility of establishing a black parliament or that there needs to be space made in Parliament House in Canberra for the voice and officers. And the Prime Minister has not even read this detail that sits behind the Uluru Statement from the Heart. That is what's most concerning about this and that there would be Australians out there who would blindly support this concept based purely on their need to feel better about our country's history, which is the emotional blackmail that has been used, weaponised against Australians to support this proposal. You must find that offensive, Jacinta, as well. And this deadline, it's a self-imposed deadline by the Prime Minister as well. So he's insisted on having a a vote this year. He could have waited a bit longer, and certainly if he hasn't read the detail one would expect that he probably should have rated till he was across it. The voice will be permanent. It can't be it can't be undone. Is that something that worries you? Just enter it's one of your arguments there. That's right, absolutely. If you look at the example of what's going on in Western Australia with the Aboriginal Heritage Act, that was a particularly awful law that that Western Australians were subjected to. And Western Australians had the opportunity to demand that their government repeal that. And so that now they've been able to do that and do it quite swiftly. But a constitutional change is a permanent change. It it takes holding an entirely new referendum with millions of taxpayer dollars being spent to change it back, should it fail, which I'm sure it will fail. And can I just add on that? One of the arguments that people on the yes side make is that, oh, it's fine because we can legislate the model of the voice and the powers and how it'll actually work. But to me, that argument's always a bit sceptical of it because if you can legislate the powers of the voice... Obviously, the voice will be more favourable towards governments that want to give the voice more power, which, given its Labor that's pushing the voice through Parliament, will naturally be the Labor government. So it's really hard to see if we actually have a legislated model of the voice, it will be politicised. I don't see any way around that. How do you feel about that? Yeah, look, uh, uh, that is of concern because if we look at some of the statutory authorities that currently exist, like the land councils, I know that the Central Land Council and the Northern Land Council and the Northern Territory have actively campaigned on behalf of Labor during elections and they're actively campaigning on behalf of The Voice at the minute. They have a responsibility, I feel, to some of our most marginalised Indigenous Australians Mm. to ensure that they're well informed. But they are pushing their agenda and they're pushing Labor's agenda and this the voice has it has the opportunity to do that absolutely why wouldn't it become a campaign body for for labor to maintain power just on that point just because it's an interesting one there's obviously a lot of indigenous groups that are campaigning for the voice you're obviously a prominent campaigner against the voice but to to one of our as we mentioned before 20 year old undecided people in this debate as well it's not a homogenous debate when it comes to the Indigenous community in Australia, is it? Can you take me through 
some of the concerns you've heard from Indigenous Australians as well? Sure. There's a raft of concerns, and where do I begin? But it starts with the Uluru Statement from the Heart. The elders from Uluru have told me they are upset that their name, Uluru, has been exploited for a PR campaign. And the last time I visited there, they said that there are a lot of locals that don't support the voice and or the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which, by the way, came about. They conducted the Uluru Dialogues, hand-picked individuals that were going to agree with their concept, were invited along to those dialogues. I wasn't one of them. And there are many Aboriginal people that I know that weren't. And then the Uluru Statement from the Heart was devised by lawyers, no doubt, Noel Pearson himself. And it was pushed on the 250 people in attendance. I've spoken to Lydia Thorpe about this, who was in attendance, who said there were those that disagreed and they walked out in protest of that whole process. And 250 unelected individual signatories, 0.03% of the population of the Indigenous population is not representative of us as a group of Australians because of our racial heritage. When I last spoke to the traditional owners of Uluru, they said they were upset when Linda Burney arrived and the Labor crew arrived, the Yes campaign arrived, when they commemorated six years since the signing of the statement at Uluru because they didn't bother to come and let themselves be known to the traditional owners there. And the only locals that were there at that gathering were the paid dancers. And Karen Little spoke specifically to some of the senior lawmen of that area who said if they had that canvas, they would burn it. They would destroy it because it's been creating trouble, in their own words. And I've been told by some of my Wadapri elders up in around Tennant Creek who said, look, we're right behind you. We don't trust this. Their concern is that in some of the current bureaucracies, the leadership of some of those individuals who have got to those positions of power because they're aggressive, they're bullies, and their concern is that's the sort of leadership they will see within The Voice. It's the toughest survive and the toughest control the situation and the circumstances, and therefore the most vulnerable would continue to miss out. They are the main concerns that a lot of Aboriginal people have brought up to me about The Voice. Well, credit to you, Jacinta, for using your voice as well to advocate for those that don't have a voice, namely the women and girls of the Northern Territory. There's a better way forward. Can we explore that concept as well, Jacinta? If the voice is is defeated, what will you, Peter Dutton, and your colleagues be proposing? Again, I think I've touched on the fact that I'd like to fix the structures that currently exist and apply a lot more accountability than what we have had in the area of Indigenous Australians. I think we need to move away from separatism. I think separatism has largely caused a lot of our issues and the racism of low expectations that we don't hold Indigenous Australians to the same standards as everybody else because of the guilt involved with our colonial history. We have to get away from all of that and start treating Australians the same, regardless of racial heritage. I grew up in a town that accepted everybody regardless of race. And the opportunities that came to me, I took up because I'm a human and I'm capable of doing so. And they're the sorts of standards we need to apply across the board. In places like the Northern Territory, I'd like to reform the Land Rights Act. I'd like to give the opportunity for traditional owners to utilise their land for economic purposes in their own right. Because as it stands under the Land Rights Act, I'm a traditional owner. If I wanted to utilise a piece of my land that I'm responsible for, 
to do something like build a bakery to create jobs and become part of the economy, I have to apply for a Section 19 lease to the Central Land Council and then the determination is made by a group of affected persons and that could be absolutely anybody these days. It provides activists to participate in activist warfare uh, against opportunities that might come along for Indigenous Australians who want to do mining on their own country and those sorts of things. We've got in remote parts of the Northern Territory socialist enclaves. If you want to see socialism at work, go to a remote Indigenous community. They're cut off from the rest of the country, they're treated differently, they're dependent on welfare, and we need to move away from this welfare model and provide the opportunity for Indigenous Australians to participate in the economy, to be job creators, to have a go at being local business, small business owners, family business owners. If they, if they fail, let them get up and have another go. This is how it's done. But as it stands right now, we don't even, traditional owners don't even have the opportunity for private home ownership. And these are things that many Australians get to take for granted. But it's different in those where the most marginalised exist. And that is what I'd like to work on changing. Yeah, so good you're shining a light on that. One, my it's really hard because I've had a lot of chats with people my age, I'm 20 years old, and a lot of well-meaning people who genuinely want to do what's best for Aboriginal people. But they also carry with them a lot of guilt and a and sense that they've benefited from the oppression of Aboriginal people. Like I've had people in my TikTok comments say, we stole their land, this is what they want, we should just do this. And there is a genuine sense that Australians and young Australians should feel guilty for living off the spoils of colonisation that's happened at the expense of Aboriginal people. What would you say to young people who feel that? I'd say that's patronising towards Indigenous Australians. Mm. Ultimately, that, con- that way of thinking is relegating us to victimhood status. And that, to me, is what's more insulting. You're not that powerful <laughs> as a young person. Your responsibility is to yourself. And if you can participate in your, in your community by doing the best as you can as an individual in your own right, that's the best you can do in participating in the wider, broader community. Mm. You, can't, you can't change the world. You can contribute meaningfully, absolutely, but do it in practical ways. Don't do it because you're driven by this idea of guilt because that guilt is stifling. It stifles progress for everybody involved. It's not helping an Indigenous person. Feeling sorry for us does nothing for us. And that's what I would say to young people. And I would also suggest know your global history. Know what's happened in the world before. Understand what's going on. Ask questions of your lecturers. Challenge your lecturers. Don't take anything on face value. And don't accept being told you're a lesser person or that you're a racist when you know that you're not that. Stand up for yourself and stand up to bullies. That's what I'd suggest. We need our young people to be proud to be Australian because if you compare our nation to other countries around the world, we come from the greatest nation on the face of the earth. If you consider global history, if you look at the way in which some countries, while being ethnically the same but have religious differences, are murdering each other, literally, 
we have got the world's oldest living culture and we have got modern Australian culture, a shared Australian culture that we've all contributed to, whether it's those of us from the first people, whether it's those of us from my, my ancestors were dispossessed of their land, brought over here as convicts as well. Mm-hmm. Dispossession has occurred the globe over. Whether you come from those backgrounds or from the migrant community, our country is remarkable because we've all contributed to our shared Australian culture and values. And if we were to be taken advantage of by other nations for sinister reasons, we have to be strong enough to stand up and be proud of who we are to fight for our country. Otherwise, we'll find ourselves in grave circumstances. So that's what I'd say to young people out there. And being a mother of four boys who are 24, 22, 20 and 16. I know the struggles of what it means to be young, but don't lose sight of who you are as an individual. Being the best you can be contributes greatly to society, whether you realise it or not. So powerful. Thank you so much for saying that. It actually makes me almost emotional because young people right now, I don't know whether it's the education system, what we've all been taught, but mm. you can just sense it. There's this pessimism yeah. there and it just breeds envy. It breeds this class warfare, this mm. sense that we, vict- we're victims and we're victims somehow, even though we're also the oppressors. I don't know how it all works. <laughs> it confuses me, but thank you so much. That is such a powerful message that young people, are just they're just not hearing and it's so sad. The world isn't made up of victims and oppressors. The world is made up of humans who are largely confused most of the time, fumbling their way through life. And uh, it's a struggle for everyone. And everyone has a right to success. Everyone has that right. If I look at my sons, my youngest, who is not Indigenous, as his older brothers are, he draws a line in the sand. He's He sees the woke education systems attempts to try to push an ideology onto him and he stood his ground and it's been assumed that because he's white that he doesn't know about Aboriginal issues but he knows his skin name because like my boys my family my Warpri family address him as Japananga he is part of the family regardless of his racial heritage and they accept him as such and so he won't allow for others to treat him as though he's an ignorant white kid Mm. when he's grown up in a Walpuri family, in a family of human beings, because his grandmother on on his mother's side, just like my boys on their father's side, they both have Mauritian grandmothers. Wow. (laughs) Our boys between them have Mauritian, French, Creole, Malay, Indian, Chinese. There's a great-great-grandfather from Mozambique on my boy's side. There's Irish, Scottish, Welsh, German, English. I've I've told them they could make a land claim on just about any (laughs) continent on the face of the earth. (laughs) That's right. But they are citizens of the world and they belong here just like anybody else. Was there a turning point for you, Jacinta, when you realised I don't want to be a victim anymore. I don't want to have that mentality. Or was that bred into you from your mother? I know she's been campaigning against this for a long time. And if so, when when was the turning point for her? I think the turning point for my mother was when she was nine years old, to be honest, when she saw her 14-year-old cousin being dragged kicking and screaming away from her camp by her promised husband, who was significantly older than her, 
And she knew that at some point in her life she would be involved in an arranged marriage and she'd have to go and live in her promised husband's camp. And when she saw that happen to her 14-year-old cousin, she said, I do not want that for me and rebelled against her traditional culture to make sure that didn't happen to her. And I think also my grandparents, the fact that my grandfather, my grandparents were in their early adolescence when they first came across whitefellas. They've told me stories of what it was like living out bush before white people came along, what it was like when they did come along. My grandfather at one point was arrested for spearing goat along with a couple of his kin and they were like the historical stories. You see the pictures of Aboriginal men being chained around the neck. He was literally chained around the neck, put on the back of a truck and taken from his country into Alice Springs and then convinced, well, forced to labour for the army and building Alice Springs. They were paid a very small income, but they were paid nonetheless. And that story, learning about that story, the most significant part for my grandfather wasn't the fact that he was chained around the neck. He never, he was just like, oh, you know, it's tough. You try to kill your enemies. They try to kill you prior to, you know, white Australians coming along. The most, the proud part of that story that he tells is the fact that he felt like he was part of the nation building of this country because he was labouring to build Alice Springs. And so I think my knowing that my grandparents came from that background and also on my father's side, my my grandparents were so poor, my grandfather built their first home out of Hessian bags, lived next to a river and washed their clothes. There was no such thing as white privilege mm. on my father's side of the family. That was the first house he built and then he built uh, another house when worked hard enough and got the materials together and actually built their family home by hand. And knowing that my great-great-great-grandmother was brought over as an orphan at 14 years old from Ireland as part of the, because of, as a result of the potato famine, her parents had died, starved to death to ensure that she could be fed and would survive. These are human stories. This is what it means to be human. I've always grown up understanding that life's bloody tough. It's hard. I've had to take care of infants in my family. We've rushed into a town camp at midnight because all hell has broken loose and there's alcohol-fueled violence taking place and my aunt and uncle have been drinking and therefore my cousin who's 18 months old, we've got to grab him and get him out of that violent scenario. And I just remember sleeping with him in the crook of my arm all night just wanting to soothe him and to make sure that he was safe. I've grown up with all of that. And I've seen the effects of alcohol and substance abuse on my family. And I've always felt that I don't want to see this anymore. That's why I decided to become a parliamentarian because I know intimately the issues that my mob face, but there are ways to deal with it. And it's just not happening because the conversations have been hijacked by activists instead of those who are being honest about the circumstances. So... I guess I've never viewed myself in a victim mentality, but rather as someone who was strong enough to fight for those who were, didn't have a voice, needed someone to fight on their behalf. And maybe it's the Warpri, maybe it's the Irish in me, but <laughs> I've had fist fights on the streets of Alice Springs as a teenager <laughs> to defend my whitefellow mates from Aboriginal girls who have berated them racially. Growing up in a town like Alice Springs, you had to be tough. You really had to be tough. I don't like bullies, and I think (laughs) that has always 
stuck with me and I've been a survivor of domestic violence following the when my first marriage broke down and going into a new relationship and discovering that this person is not the person they cracked up to be. There was probably an element of feeling victimised then but realising that I had three beautiful boys that I had to be strong for and make sure I continued to provide for them so they could be well-rounded human beings as they grew up. There's a lot of anger and emotion in this debate, but what Freya and I and our listeners are hearing from you today, Jacinta, is you calmly stating your background, your story as well, Mm. and presenting facts as well. And these facts often run counter with what we're Mm. hearing a lot in the media and from other academics. And I think that's even more powerful than a lot of the emotion that's been injected into this debate. So we're really grateful for it. You're obviously a very tough lady, Jacinta, and you're going up against an incredible lobby here as well on the other side. I know a lot of our supporters have sent in messages of support of support for you. So if I can take you back to that first question I posed, I think, imagine you've got a couple of minutes in a lift or at an interaction at Fraser University with a 20-year-old voter who's heard arguments from both sides, what do you, what's your message to them? I would suggest to them, do your homework, do your research, look into the detail, understand that your vote is really important because the Constitution belongs to each and every Australian. But this referendum is the most divisive referendum our country has ever faced, I believe. And there's... In, in Australia in 2023, we should never be seeking to divide us along the lines of race within our constitution. I, I have spoken to ambassadors from different parts of the world and they ask me, why is Australia doing this, especially European countries who know all too well in, in recent history, the world wars that we've had, the reasons behind those world wars have ultimately been racially driven and what we're suggesting pushes us in a direction that could provide an environment where we could see those sorts of atrocities occur and we need to understand from history not to go down those same paths and not to take the Prime Minister's words as they're honest in any way. I don't want to be relegated to an entity because of my racial heritage and treated differently. It should not be occurring. We don't want to be constitutionally enshrined as perpetual victims in the Constitution. And there are absolutely many other ways in which we can support our most marginalised, and this is not it. Thank you very much, Jacinta, for joining us for this podcast. Thank you, Freya. Our listeners should have received in the mail the referendum booklet that outlines some of the arguments that Jacinta's put to us today, along with arguments from... You've been listening to another water cooler conversation brought to you by the Menzies Research Centre. We'd like to bring you you many more, of course, and you can help us by subscribing from just $10 a month. Go to www.menziesrc.org slash subscribe. I'm Nick Cater, and thank you for listening.